Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. Today, we're exploring the U.S. international tax implications of the mandatory capitalization rules of Section 174, which are currently effective for calendar year taxpayers, and how they might ripple through your financial statements and tax returns. For this discussion, I am delighted to be joined by three of my colleagues here at KPMG, Jennifer Gray, Stephanie Humphrey, and Danielle Rolfus. Jennifer is a director in the Federal Tax, Legislative, and Regulatory Services Group, also known as FLORS. Staff is a managing director in the Accounting Methods and Credit Services Practice, also known as AMCS. Finally, Danielle is a partner and co-head of the WNT International Tax Group. Jennifer and Danielle have joined me in the past on this podcast. This will be Steph's first episode. Steph, welcome to the podcast, and Jennifer and Danielle, welcome back. Thanks for having us, Gary. It's great to be back, Gary. Good to be here, Gary. Let's start with a brief overview of the mandatory capitalization rules in Section 174. Like many of the pay-fors in the TCJA, the rules mandating the capitalization of research and experimental expenditures, or R&E, were enacted in December 2017, but were deferred in this case until tax years beginning in 2022. Going forward, R&E must be capitalized and amortized rateably over a five-year period for research conducted in the U.S. and 15 years for research conducted outside the U.S. Beginning with the midpoint of the tax year in which the R&E expenses were paid or incurred. RE subject to mandatory capitalization include expenditures for software development. In the case of retired, abandoned, or disposed property with respect to which RE expenditures have been paid or incurred, any remaining basis is not recovered in the year of retirement, abandonment, or disposal, but instead continues to be amortized over the remaining five or 15 year period. Neither the Republicans nor the Democrats seem to like the mandatory capitalization rules. Congress loves to incentivize R&E. This does the opposite. As one of our guests today, Danielle, is wont to say, mandatory capitalization is too stupid for words. Indeed, one of the carrots in the Build Back Better Act, or BBBA, the reconciliation bill that passed the House but is installed in the Senate, was the deferral of mandatory capitalization for four more years. Jennifer, what's the latest on the BBBA? Is it totally dead or is it in the words of Miracle Max only mostly dead? So as you mentioned, Gary, I mean, the real question is what is the way forward in the Senate? Can they find a way to get to 50 Democratic votes or not? Certainly Senator Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Sinema from Arizona in particular have mentioned some concerns. I suspect other senators have concerns as well. Also, as I'm sure you know, there is one Democratic senator who is having a health issue right now. So the Senate will need to wait for him to return in order to have those potential 50 Democratic votes. Because this is a reconciliation bill, the BBBA does technically expire at the end of the fiscal year, which is 
September 30, 2022. So the bill would have to be passed prior to that date if it were to become law. For practical purposes, you know, this is an election year and it is notoriously hard to legislate in an election year for a number of reasons, not the least of which is other issues and other priorities tend to pop up. In particular, obviously, the inflation numbers are very concerning. Everyone that comes out is concerning over the last couple months. Uh, Senator Manchin in particular has really focused upon those numbers and has tied that to the BBBA passage. And so that is one issue that's come up. But, you know, just some completely unrelated issues like the Ukrainian situation has come about. Uh, there's a new opening on the Supreme Court. So that is a nomination that the Senate will have to process. And that is a time-consuming process uh, in the Senate as well. And so you know, every day that goes by, it just gets incrementally harder for the BBBA to pass, especially because it's such a major piece of legislation. That being said, it is not dead yet. It still has some time. Just, you know, every day, I think maybe it gets closer and closer to life support, perhaps. So if the BBBA fails, is it possible that the elimination or at least the deferral of mandatory capitalization finds another legislative home? I think it's quite possible. I think the question is going to be what that home will be. As you know, it's very rare for a singular tax issue to pass on its own. They tend to be part of larger legislation. And so part of the issue is that 174 provision finding a vehicle that it can you know, hitch a ride upon. But I think another issue is for those who support the BBBA, if they take it out of that bill and put it onto another piece of legislation before the BBBA were to pass, some folks might see that as a vote of no confidence in the BBBA. So that, I think, is particularly one issue that folks may have to be thinking about. But putting that aside, as far as looking for a vehicle, I think in addition to the BBBA, I think there will be a spending bill we expect in mid-March. And so I think a question will be whether or not that bill can hitch a ride upon that. I think one of the challenges there is that if you add one tax item onto a non-tax bill, then of course, all the supporters of a multitude of other tax items also want to be included. And so it just becomes an issue of how do you allow one and not others? Uh, the argument here, of course, would be because with the 174, there's some quarterly tax payments that are coming into play potentially for some companies. I think that would be the argument that the proponents would make for trying to include that upon that spending bill. You know, if it doesn't make it onto that bill. There's potentially a bill dealing with some competition issues, particularly focused upon China. Certainly folks are making an argument that this would be a natural fit there. Again, you have the same issue. If you bring one tax item on, then other tax items also want to try to attach to that bill. And probably the worst case scenario and perhaps likely if it doesn't make it onto the spending bill or the BBBA doesn't move, is we're probably looking at lame duck as we do often with these type of extenders provisions. And obviously that's not ideal for those companies who are caring a lot about this 174 issue right now. I don't want to put you on the spot, Jennifer, but what is your honest assessment of the possibility that anyone ever files a tax return that reflects mandatory capitalization? Well, I don't know about ever, but as far as as a annual return in the next year or so, I expect that this 174 issue that we will see some type of an extension of the expensing provision, at least uh, short term. Again, it may not be until the end of this year, but my best guess is we probably see something uh, before the end of the calendar year that includes an extension. I would anticipate that supporters also would work very hard to ensure that such an extension is retroactive to January 1, 2022. So that, of course, will be another issue in addition to whether or not the provision 
is able to become law by the end of the year, but what the effective date on that would be. Thanks, Jennifer. It certainly seems like a strong possibility that mandatory capitalization is eventually repealed or eventually deferred, but the rules are currently in effect. Steph, what should our clients be thinking about at this moment in light of mandatory capitalization? So I think there's a couple of things that are probably the most time sensitive to companies at, the, at this point. And I think it's first and foremost, Q1 financial statements. And then secondly, and, and coming quickly thereafter is estimated tax payment and the cash tax implications associated with this provision. So taking the estimated tax payments point first, we know many, many taxpayers take advantage of the 25% of prior year safe harbor for the Q1 estimates. So for those taxpayers, this may not be a concern until their Q2 payments, which will be based on actual tax expected for the 2022 tax year. There are also some companies that aren't able to take advantage of that safe harbor. So they, they would be worried about this cash tax implication for their Q1 payments. And we know for some clients, this provision is quite material. And the idea of capitalizing all of their 174 spend, especially R&D intensive businesses, is a really significant cash tax impact in year one. Over time, it may have a temporary impact on overall cash taxes, but in the short term, this first year implementation could be quite large. Secondly, I mentioned financial reporting. We're nearing the end of Q1 for calendar year taxpayers. And this is currently law, as you mentioned, Gary. So it is a provision that all of our clients and taxpayers are going to have to think about when they file their Q1 financials. So just taking that for a second, from a purely domestic perspective, this provision may appear to just be a timing difference for financial reporting purposes. So additional current tax expense today with an offsetting deferred tax asset for future deductions as this capitalization amortizes. But for multinational corporations that have significant foreign operations, there are aspects of this that may be permanent with the impact on FIDI, guilty, beat, other foreign tax credit allocations, and Section 163J. Let's talk about each of these impacts in turn. Steph, how could mandatory capitalization impact FIDI? So for FIDI, the impact is probably going to be favorable in most cases because expenses that previously would have been allocated against gross FIDI are now being capitalized. But even a favorable impact is going to have an unexpected impact on a company's effective tax rate. And we've seen a lot that most companies do not desire volatility in their ETR. So while it hopefully is favorable, that volatility in and of itself really may present a challenge for some companies on a quarterly basis. Danielle, tell us how mandatory capitalization could impact the calculation of BEAT. Well, under current law, Owing beat tax in a year is never a timing difference. Instead, it's always a permanent effect on your effective tax rate. So if mandatory capitalization has the effect of throwing a taxpayer either into or out of beat relative to their baseline where Section 174 amounts are just currently deductible, that's also going to increase volatility. So just to unpack that a little bit, it's going to depend on the taxpayer's facts, whether the mandatory capitalization increases or decreases a taxpayer's B exposure. 
if the R&E expense that's being capitalized reflect amounts paid to a related party that are potentially beatable because it's a foreign related party, then having those amounts be capitalized, at least for the time being, could drop that taxpayer below the 3% threshold, which you'll recall has in the numerator deductible payments to related parties and in the denominator all the good deductions. So you can see where reducing the current deduction for R&E paid to related parties could cause a taxpayer that's otherwise in a position of being above the 3% threshold to drop below the 3% thresholds that would suggest they shouldn't be accruing beat liability. On the other hand, if the taxpayers are in deductions that are subject to mandatory capitalization are not beatable payments, they're payments to an unrelated person or to a U.S. person, then no longer having those amounts in the denominator of the base erosion percentage threshold could push that taxpayer over the 3% threshold, which, as we know, for U.S. companies, many rely on staying below the 3% base erosion percentage so as to not suffer the cliff effect of having their foreign tax credits come in to the beat math. But those taxpayers, at least until unless and until this mandatory capitalization is repealed, may find that for financial reporting purposes, they have to accrue a beat liability that they you know, expect to not ultimately apply. Of course, it's also true that as a general matter, more taxable income under for the purposes of regular tax will always help to reduce a potential beat liability in that you have to compare your beat tax to regular tax. So there's another interactive effect that needs to be taken into consideration, which I think just underscores that considering the impact on B is going to require some probably close modeling for many taxpayers. And that could include taxpayers that didn't really think they had a potential B issue to be thinking about. So, Steph, how would mandatory capitalization impact guilty? As it relates to the permanent impacts I talked about earlier, the biggest impact most likely will be from a guilty perspective as the impact of mandatory capitalization is going to increase tested income on any CFC that performs or pays for R&E expenses. In addition, since the amortization period for research conducted outside of the United States is 15 years versus the five-year amortization for domestic research, R&E expenses performed by a CFC are generally going to be subject to the 15-year amortization. On that point in particular, I think it's important to keep in mind that the amortization period is not based on which entity incurs the expense or has the originating deduction, but where the RE is performed. And that can be really challenging for a taxpayer to identify. They have information about where the expense is incurred, but knowing where the ultimate provider of the service is located, particularly in the case that maybe a third-party contractor is being used for that R&E expense, identifying the location of that contractor, for example, can add an additional compliance burden on top of the complex modeling exercise of all of these interrelated impacts. 
And Steph, I just want to underscore what you've said, because this is an area where I see a lot of confusion. I think there's a tendency for some to think that whether you're subject to the five years versus the 15 years depends on whether the entity is a U.S. entity or a foreign entity that's making the payment for the R&D services. Take, for example, the situation of a U.S. affiliate that's making a payment to a foreign affiliate for research that the foreign affiliate is conducting offshore. If that is, for example, a cost plus payment so that the U.S. entity making that payment itself has 174, and I don't think there's any question about it, the funder of that research where it's a cost plus arrangement that the funder of that r and &E expense itself has 174, that is a 174 deduction for R&E activities that are happening outside of the U.S. subject to the 15-year capitalization. And I do see that getting missed in some of the modeling under mandatory capitalization. Steph, what other implications to guilty are there? So as we mentioned at the beginning, the mandatory capitalization provision is going to result in increased tested income at, at CFCs that conduct or pay for RE expenses. So that's going to ultimately result in a reduced DTR for the CFC and in some cases will have an impact on high tax exception elections. So that's a major consideration for companies as they're reviewing the impacts of this provision on their guilty calculation. Another point is that you know vast majority of companies do book guilty as a period cost for financial reporting purposes. So the increase in guilty will always result in a permanent increase in the company's ETR. There are a limited number of companies that have elected to book guilty deferreds. So the impact of mandatory capitalization of RE has the potential to be a timing impact only, similar to the domestic point we made earlier. Um, but it would be a, a modeling exercise to calculate the actual impact of the capitalization. I know of at least a few companies for which the impact of mandatory capitalization on CFCs that conduct a lot of 174 activities is so significant in introducing so much volatility in their ETR that they are considering for the first time whether if this doesn't get fixed in the near term and is allowed to continue for a few quarters, would that taxpayer consider electing to book guilty deferreds? Which I also know from my clients that have made that election it can be a very complex undertaking. That's why, as you note, Steph, most companies have opted instead to treat their guilty tax as a period cost. But some companies at least are reconsidering that choice if this is allowed to go on much longer. And one of the rough points on that is I think once you've elected guilty deferreds, it could be hard to elect back out of it. You can't just go back and forth. So that's how significant this is for some companies. Danielle, any impact on taxpayers' ability to credit foreign taxes? Well, obviously, increasing your foreign source income in any basket is going to increase foreign tax credit capacity. And that could require a taxpayer to, for example, revisit valuation allowances that they've booked against their foreign tax credit carry-forwards. That's just one example of where R&D conducted in the U.S. might actually have the effect that the mandatory capitalization creates ETR volatility, again, in the financial statements, even though we would say it's generally just timing difference. The timing differences really matter for taxpayers that have valuation allowances against expiring credit. 
So this is just another source of complexity, a complex modeling exercise to see just what is the current law impact on that valuation allowance, since you can't base your valuation allowances on what you think the law might eventually be. And, and volatility of mandatory capitalization is later repealed. The other point to observe is that because the rules for allocating R&E expense against US and foreign source income often spread that expense like peanut butter across all of the gross income that a taxpayer has from generating sales in the relevant product category, you could have the situation where U.S. conducted R&E is impacting valuation allowances against branch basket taxes in pretty unintuitive ways. So I think although in the context of foreign tax credits, we can often say, well, it really ought to just be timing. There are a number of situations where that won't be the case, including in particular where there are otherwise valuation allowances at play. I might also add that guilty foreign tax credits don't have a carry forward period. So any excess guilty credits never benefit the financial statements. But obviously, if you're a taxpayer that has increased your guilty inclusion because of mandatory capitalization, you're using more of those FTCs to the extent you're able to shelter that excess inclusion with foreign tax credits, maybe that helps those taxpayers that are otherwise facing a period cost for the increased guilty inclusion. But depending on how long this R&E 15-year capitalization, and I heard you highlight the midpoint convention, which I think means in year one, you may only get a 30th of the deduction, that is going to have potentially a very significant effect on taxpayers that are RE intensive so that they actually don't have enough excess foreign tax credits to shelter the larger inclusion that results for taxpayers that have a lot of RE offshore. So we've already referenced the rather common fact pattern where one member of a multinational group, such as a CFC, provides RE services to another entity in the group, such as the US owner of IP, there's historically been some uncertainty regarding whether the expenses of both parties, the service provider and the IP owner, are RE expenses described in Section 174. The answer to this question has been perhaps less important in the past than it is today, since now all RE described in 174 must be capitalized. Danielle, can you talk to this issue? That is an issue that has gotten a lot of attention. Is there really a possibility that both an R&E service provider as well as the service recipient, the entity that's funding the research, would have Section 174 expenses subject to this rule? For example, I've already highlighted the fact that in the cross-border context, the U.S. often pays a foreign affiliate a cost-plus payment in exchange for R&D services. We've said there is no question that in that circumstance, the funder, the U.S. entity, has Section 174 treatment for its cost-plus payment. And you heard us say that that funder's payment is subject to 15-year amortization. Could it really be possible that the payee of the cost plus services payment is also capitalizing its cost base of that payment for 15 years? That kind of doubling up is the prime example of why I say that this provision is too stupid 
for words. It also didn't matter much in the past whether the recipient of a cost plus payment had 174, given that if it wasn't 174, I think there'd be no question that a cost plus service provider has a section 162 deduction. So it was going to be currently deductible either way. There wouldn't have been any question that that cost plus service provider was producing an asset that had some potential future benefit that could be subject to capitalization if it wasn't eligible for 174. The regulations under section 174 define 174 as applying to research or experimental expenditures that are incident to the development or improvement of a product for use in a trade or business. Everybody is staring at those words now, asking themselves whether a service provider that receives a comps plus compensation payment and doesn't own any rights at all in the direct results of the research really satisfy the requirement to use the research in its business. These are all questions that need to be considered to determine whether a particular legal entity has a Section 174 expense that has to be capitalized. What are some other knock-on effects of these rules, Danielle? Well, a good one is the impact on cost-sharing arrangements. To describe that impact, let me back up and just describe the general treatment of Section 174 costs that are incurred as part of a cost-sharing arrangement that might be entered into between the U.S. and a foreign affiliate under which they jointly own the resulting IP. If the U.S. performs more than its share of the 174 costs, and whether the U.S. is performing more than its share of the 174 costs is determined by reference to the how much the U.S. is reasonably expected to benefit from the 174 costs that are incurred to develop the IP, taking into account the U.S.'s sort of territory under the cost-sharing arrangement. As is often the case, the U.S. incurs more than its share. In that circumstance, a foreign cost-sharing participant is required to make a compensating payment to the U.S. for that excess. So far, so good, because the regulations under the cost-sharing rules actually tell us that the U.S. treats the receipt of that cost-sharing payment like it's a reimbursement of the U.S.'s 174 costs that it incurred and that the U.S. should reduce the 174 deductions by the amount of the payment. However, that provision only applies to the extent of the amount of currently deductible expenses. So read literally, the reg seems to tell us that if the U.S. receives an amount in excess of the payments that were incurred pursuant to the cost-sharing arrangement that are currently deductible, that the U.S. is treated as having gross income. That's essentially treated as compensation for the use of property. This obviously doesn't make any sense. Now, I suppose the one saving grace is the U.S. now in this scenario has positive gross income in the current year. But on the other hand, because it didn't reduce its 174 costs that are really attributable to the foreign cost-sharing participant, the U.S. 
arguably has, you know, those 174 costs as a deferred tax asset subject to the amortization on its books. This literally seems to be how the reg applies. You know, I think many are scratching their head and say, could this be what was intended? Steph, any other knock-on effects? Another point I would raise that we haven't really addressed so far, we mentioned earlier that mandatory capitalization applies to software development. This is because prior to TCJA, Revenue Procedure 2000-50 provided guidance to taxpayers for software development activities that they could be treated like 174 expenses to remove uncertainty around the treatment of those costs and how they aligned with the technical uncertainty criteria of Section 174. When TCGA enacted mandatory capitalization, it also added a defined term for specified research expenditures, which included expenses related to software development. However, this change creates a question around whether that software development also needs to meet the technical uncertainty criteria of Section 174 or just needs to be software development as was contemplated in Revenue Procedure 2000-50. So, for example, a taxpayer may incur costs to perform minor enhancements to further develop software. Those changes don't have any technical uncertainty, might be considered maintenance-type activity from the perspective of the taxpayer. So the question is, is that type of software development includable or excludable from the new Section 174 definition? This is a question that companies are also going to need to consider as they're evaluating their pool of Section 174 costs for purposes of upcoming financial statement reporting. I'll just add that the more we dig into the impact of mandatory capitalization, we find that the outcomes are often unexpected and unintuitive. So as with most everything post-TCJA, modeling the impacts is imperative. And I would just warn our audience to beware of thinking that this is just timing for purposes of financial reporting, which is necessarily based on current law. There are many unintuitive circumstances where the impact ends up looking like a permanent ETR hit for purposes of financial reporting. Thanks, Danielle, and thanks also to Jennifer and Steph for sharing your valuable insights on mandatory capitalization. To sum up this episode, mandatory capitalization may or may not survive the year, but regardless of whether these rules ever hit a tax return, mandatory capitalization of R&E is, as of recording this episode, the law of the land and thus could have an impact on your financial accounting and maybe even on your estimated taxes. As for that impact, from an international tax perspective, it could be positive or negative depending upon your circumstances. Could reduce your ETR by increasing your FIDI deduction or reducing your BEAT liability. Conversely, it could increase your ETR by increasing the taxes you pay in a guilty or increasing your beat liability. And there could even be second and third order effects that you'll only ever discover through modeling. In any case, we shall keep an eye out on the future of mandatory capitalization. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these and other developments in US international tax. Until our next episode, take care. 